Bloody Elbow presents the Hey, Not the Face podcast. Your host is Bloody Elbow's chief financial columnist, John Nash. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Hey, Not the Face podcast with your host, John Nash. I am the producer, Steffi Haynes, and we have an amazing show set up for you today. It's going to compare the pay that boxers and MMA fighters make. And John, you have come up with the most amazing outline ever, and I feel terrible that you did all the legwork this time. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm supposed to do none of the work. I'm just supposed to roll out of bed, record, go back to bed. I know. I have failed you miserably today, but I got to say, today's outline is phenomenal. I'm looking forward to to kicking this off. So with your good grace, I'll go ahead and do that. All yours. All mine. So who makes more money, boxers or MMA fighters? Well, that's that's a tough question. It's there's some boxers make more, some MMA fighters make more. Uh, the the true question, well, I guess not the true question, but we got it's it's going to take some breaking down. We're going to have to get into this, right? So we're going to have to first of all, we're going to have to talk about like who makes more. Do the are the 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 general myth I think that everybody assumes the general with not myth I should say the general the assumption everybody makes is boxers at the top make a lot more, and that. But in MMA, that the, uh, the everybody else, not the top guys, make more, and that's none of that's a hundred percent true. So we'll have to get we'll have to break that down. Is it true that the just the top boxers make any money though? Can can you at least answer that before we break it down to its atoms? Okay, well that's not true. There's more than just the top. I mean, if you listen to Josh Thompson had a podcast the other day, and he said like basically, which is common that only. Canelo Alvarez and Tyson Fury are the only one that make money. And and that's obviously not true. We know a lot of boxers make a lot of money. Yeah. So when we get, we'll get into that. In a, I, I, there's going to be kind of, I have to do a setup because there's, it's, it's much more complex than just the simple boxers make more than MMA fighters and MMA fighters make more than boxers. Dana White seems to think that boxers get paid entirely too much. Josh Thompson seems to think that there's only two famous boxers worth making a whole lot. Help me out here with this because I'm having a hard problem with Dana White saying that boxers make too much. Now, I know well, why. Well, yeah, the simple reason. He's a promoter. Mm-hmm. He's an MMA promoter. So he does not want his fighters making as much as boxers because then he won't make as much. And the easy reason for this is you just look at the profit margins between the two the two industries, the UFC right now, their EBITDA earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, kind of a, a summary of what their a basic uh, surrogate for profit, we'll use it, is 50% margins. In other words, for every dollar that they bring in, 50% goes to the cost and the fighters and the production. The other 50% goes to the owners or paying off debt that the owners accrued, which went to their pockets anyway, so it doesn't really count. But in boxing, a promoter is lucky to make 10% a year on all the revenue. That's a lot, lot less. Wow. I I do have one more question about the, the Josh Thompson comments, because I did go through and watch most of that video that you referenced. One thing that I noted that he said was that he wanted the fighters to be in that 22 to 25 percentile range of their share of the revenue. And that stuck out to me because that's shooting kind of low wouldn't you say Uh, that's shoot i mean he's got very modest expectations you know got to start low somewhere but yeah the 22 i i do not know where he came up with that number i don't know why that that number stuck up because basically what he's saying is that the fighters need he would be happy if ufc fighters were making five percent more of the total revenue or you know maybe six you know because right now it's kind of a a question mark whether it's 17 18 19 or 20 i like to to err on the side of caution and say that it's 17 well the other thing is the way the ufc what what we calculate as fighter costs are Mm -hmm. not the same as fighter pay because fighter pay is one some fighter costs is another and if we use fighters 
costs that includes stuff like the USADA drug testing that includes the the uh, the payments they get for the uniform kit payments that you includes mean the things they never asked for that they shouldn't be docked because they're not actually employees yeah exactly and it's <laughs> it's also those are items too that you generally wouldn't assume that fighters would would you wouldn't consider that part of a payment for a fighter i mean the sponsorship you might except for the fact that fighters had sponsors before mm-hmm. so that you know they're getting that compensation they're including is is based on money they took away from the fighters well let's get started here first okay. off how do we know what everybody is making how do we know what the ufc fighters and mma fighters are getting paid how do we know what the boxers are getting paid well, starting with the UFC and MMA fighters, the promoters and MMA and all around have made it as hard as possible for us to know. But we do have several sources we can go to. We have the Athletic Commission payouts, the remaining ones, because the mostly this is the UFC. They've used their leverage to get Nevada to stop reporting on payout purses. Before, that was a great source that we had, Nevada, because that's where a lot of the big fights was. Nevada would re- report on payouts. We'd also... Florida has been off and on on their payouts, and other states have now cut back. But a few years ago, we had up about 14 states, 15 actually, would give us MMA payouts, the, the purses for every event. And that's from small promotions to big ones. That's that's a big source of the information. Those purse information, though, is not 100% accurate. But for, for the vast majority of fighters, it is accurate. It's just the top ones generally have side deals and stuff that uh, obscure it. But we'll get to that later. The other one is the antitrust lawsuit has given us a lot of information because it gave us total payouts for the UFC, not just from, you know, these aren't estimates. People always bring up the antitrust lawsuit and say these are, oh, we have estimates of what the UFC pays. No, these are concrete numbers that the UFC provided. I mean, these are also internal documents, the UFC calculating what they paid their fighters from all the way back to 2001 up to 2016. So we know all the numbers those years, and we know the percentages, how much they paid. We also have the percentages a lot of their their competitors at the time, like Bellator, paid out to their fighters. So we have comparisons. And there's also details in the lawsuit of what the average undercard fighter, let's say, and preliminary fighter in in Bellator would make. So So we have some comparatives in the lawsuit. And on top of that also, there's actually individual fighter payouts we know from the lawsuit. Like they break down certain fighters specifically. Like we know from the lawsuit, Conor McGregor got a $2.11 million million, uh, uh, discretionary bonus for UFC 189. Specific details of the latter included. So we got that. Uh, I also conducted a survey with the fighters, right? And the survey asking them specifically off the record what they made. And I've looked at numerous contracts. I've compiled the information from that that gives us a sense of what fighters are making. And then there's also been leaked internal documents to me or other members of the media that we have seen from the UFC or other promotions that give us a sense of what they're paying. So that's what that's what we know for MMA fighters. That's where all of our information comes from. What about now, boxers? Okay, with boxers, it's actually a little better. Even though we don't have some of that concrete antitrust law, so we have the same athletic commission reports with the same caveats. We have the Golden Boy lawsuit against Al Heyman where Golden Boy had to include their finances. So for several years, we have not only just the total pay of the fighters, we have the individual boxers, how much Golden Boy paid them every year. So we can actually see the true numbers and then compare them to the athletic commissions. And that's why we know for the vast majority of boxers, the athletic commission reports are 100% accurate. Then we have also the UFC antitrust lawsuit included some evidence submitted by the boxing promoters. So we know the percentage of revenue from Golden Boy and Top Rank that was going to boxers. So we can compare that. Uh, We also have tons of lawsuits in boxing that include actual purse information. Like what the splits were, how much was paid. We got the Golden Boy. We got Canelo's lawsuit with Golden Boy. We got uh, Gennady Golovkin's lawsuit with Golden Boy. We have uh, we have uh, 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 Mickey Garcia's lawsuit with Top Rank. We have numbers of to- you know lawsuits, I, dozens at this point, with individual payouts. We have the public purse bids because we know the number when there's a purse bid that the number becomes public what they're paying the fighters. And we also because of the way boxing works because there's an MMA generally it's the promoter and the boxer and his manager. Those are the only ones that negotiate the purse. So you have a very small number of people with information in boxing. It's the promoter. It's the boxers, the managers, the athletic commissions, because you're required to give your contract to the athletic commissions. They don't always 
take it. But often enough, they have detailed information of the, what you're being paid with the athletic commission. So they have that information. And not only do you have it, your opponent often has it because part of the negotiations is both sides have to be aware of what they're getting paid. And that means the broadcaster often has to step in and pay. So you have you know, multiple, not just twice as many, possibly four or five times as many people knowing about purse information. So we get a lot more leaks in boxing. And we know those leaks are accurate. We know when Mike Coppinger or Dan Raphael or Chris Mannix or any of these people put out a number, often it ends up being accurate because the lawsuit will come out and say, oh, the number that they, they, that they, that the number that they reported on as a as a you know that was going to be paid that was not made public by the athletic commission ends up being proven in the lawsuit. How much of that gets muddled up in cases like Floyd Mayweather, for instance, where he acts as his own promoter and he wants a share of all the the concessions and the ticket sales? I mean, he wants everything and he wants to control everything. So, what happens in those instances? Is there a clear uh, picture of what someone like Floyd Mayweather makes other than what he puts out himself. Floyd is probably harder to get exact numbers because he, again, he gets, we probably know his split, you know, people at Showtime and HBO that worked with him knew what his split with. So the numbers being leaked out of what he was kind of in the ballpark getting is probably accurate because there's still, it almost, it might even be easier because you know, if he's getting 70% of the revenue, let's say, then that 70%, he's the, he gets to keep all of it. The, how he wants to split it up at that point is his own decision. Mm-hmm. So for the in that sense, you know, we probably we still got a pretty good sense of what he made. Now, the one problem we've had lately is we have a lot of websites that spring up, a lot of them in the UK base, that are obviously just making up numbers. And I think that muddies the water for people because they'll see someone say, oh, this boxer got 6 million plus pay-per-view points. And then you'll look at it and go, what's the source for that? There's no... First of all, the way they describe it tells me that it's false because no one gets paid that way in boxing. You know, no one gets paid a flat sum and then like a bonus, almost like a UFC bonus. Mm-hmm. It doesn't typically work that way. So that tells me it's not accurate. But then you just you just see it's almost like they write them. You know, it's a program writes the article, fills in the names and posts it. But a lot of people now cite these articles and those are kind of mudding the water the last couple of years especially when they're trying to do their own configurations of sponsor pay in within the UFC because that's that's a whole new can of worms now that Venom and The Rock and everybody else is in there just making everything very opaque so i get you there mm-hmm. let me ask you this how does MMA versus boxing pay compare between those two sports overall if we look at it i did a chart uh, a while back, I took the 2009 in 2019, I submitted to all the athletic commissions. I made requests to all the athletic commissions that gave out fighter payout, right? And boxing payout. And I asked them to give me all the purses they could. And I compiled all the purses I could for a six month period, the first half of 2019, several thousand purses, right? And then what I did is I, I charted it so I could, I, I made it a, a distribution chart. In other words, how many boxers at, uh, you know, the, the bottom 10% were making this much at the 20 percentile, how much were they making 30? And I, and I laid it out on a graph and I'm, I'll tweet it when this, this comes out. Uh, I sent you a copy of it too. And it, and that gives you a sense of the distribution, the pay distribution in the two sports. Okay. I also did what's called a weighted version because those 14 states we had, they were overburdened, overloaded with the top fighters. But a lot of the smaller promotions were in other states. And so to get a true sense of whatever he's making, I did almost like a demographic. I, I put the number of fighters in a major promotion, number of fighters in a major broadcast, you know, how many were on the main events, how many undercards compared to small, broke them up in a demographic, and then weighted it again to, to match the, the true number of uh, promote events being held across the country. So I did that again to give us a better sense, probably a more accurate a sense of the pay distribution. So I'll post that too. But if you look at that that spread, what you see is the truth is, is that Overall, boxers on the vast majority of boxers tend to make more than MMA fighters across the board from about the the fifth percentile all the way up to about the 90, 85th, 90 percentile boxers make more Then at the very top. Obviously, the top few percentage boxers make a lot, lot, lot more than MMA fighters. We're talking multiples more of the very top guys. 
where MMA fighters make more is that generally that the kind of almost an upper middle class, middle class ground of the 85 percentile, high 85, maybe 88 percentile to the 95, 96 percentile. That basically 10 percent of the the distribution for MMA fighters, they make more than boxers. And it can be a sizable amount. They can where a boxer at that distribution would make 55,000 MMA fighter might make 82,000. So why do boxers seem to make more? at the lower levels well there's a bunch of reasons for that uh one reason one simple reason boxers at the bottom make more is some states have have purse minimums for every round you get either fifty dollars or hundred dollars is your minimum payout and that doesn't mean much but when you're a boxer and you know compared to an mma fighter mma professional mma fighters start with three rounds so if it's fifty dollars a round it's 150 dollars. if you're a boxer you can be four or even six rounds that's what an undercard prelim often will box at so you will make more automatically just because those states have a minimum that helps a little bit that gives a bump the other thing is there's generally a sense that boxing has kind of a a, a much bigger uh, almost like minor league program of developing fighters and MMA, the general thing is the the general assumption of a promoter is just to hold vents and give fighters an opportunity. There's very little building fighters done in MMA. I mean, it's done. Promoters and managers and stuff build fighters up, but not to the degree the boxers do. Because in MMA, a fighter, no matter what, is going to gen- eventually move on to another promoter. So there's no reason to put that much energy to build your boxer. If you're a promoter in boxing... You will sign a guy young, develop him, but you'll be with him for years. And so you need opponents to build him because you're going to build that boxer up until he is into the big purses. You, you're not going to hand him off to a Bellator or UFC or another promotion. He's going to stick with you. So you want to develop him, and that means getting opponents. And those opponents, you don't want to get just anybody. You need a quality opponents that help this boxer develop. Or you also, those promoters, those opponents also know that you need them. You need the specific opponent so they can ask for more. And so that's where you see a professional journey, a much larger class of a professional opponents in boxing that make more at that bottom end than MMA fighters do. Okay, why do we see a bunch of MMA fighters basically making uh, middle-class money, middle-class purses, you know, 10000 to, I don't know, 75,000, 100,000. We see a lot more of those, or we seem to, than boxers. Is that a fair assessment to make? That's 100% fair, and that's almost exclusively because of the UFC. The UFC premium. They pay fighters more than they would generally in distribution at at the bottom. They pay them more. So that group of fighters that are in the UFC, for the most part, make more than they would outside the UFC and make more than someone in that position in, in boxing would make. So because prelim boxers, you know, they're not they're just on the prelims. They're on regional shows, whatever. But M- MMA fighters is a 10 to 12 thousand dollar minimum. Every fighter gets it. And so that group of fighters in the UFC gets gets a big bump. But the thing is, people look at that and say, OK, MMA pays more. No, the UFC pays more. The UFC pays more, but you got to remember the UFC holds 42 events a year, right? 42 events is a drop in the bucket of the total number of events. And so if you compare the UFC, even though they hold 42 events a year and they pay their undercards more, if you combine the total of all the major boxing promoters that are on a network in the U.S., on DAZN, on Showtime, on ESPN, and you put them together, and I'm using numbers back a couple of years pre-pandemic because that kind of screwed things up for a couple of years, and that's also when I have purse information. So we'll use 2019. There was like 165 events for boxing promoters that year on those networks. That's a lot. From, from t- that's a ton. So even though the undercard is not getting paid as much because the undercard fighters on those events are often debuting fighters, have three and one records, are opponents that have like four and five records that are specifically picked to help develop a guy. The undercards are not paid a lot in those box events. Everybody on the main card is generally paid pretty good at you at paid at MMA levels or much higher. But you have 165 events. That's a lot, a lot of boxers that get to fight at those levels. And so, yes, the, their undercards might not pay as well, might not be as stacked, but there's just a lot more main events, a lot more main cards being hosted by major boxing promoters on major networks. How much more are the top boxers making than MMA fighters? And, and how many more boxers, uh, this is, you know, side side question, but how many more boxers are making, say, 
million dollar purses than our our brother MMA fighters. How much are they making? Well, there's just they make a lot more. We'll start off with that. And it, you can see it with the top guys. The top guys make ridiculous amounts of money. I mean, Conor McGregor, this year, the highest paid fighter in the UFC is probably Israel Adesanya. Maybe maybe Nate Diaz, because he renegotiated the last minute. He got a bump up. It might have put him as the highest. But Israel Adesanya is making anywhere, depending on, you know, he's getting a minimum of four to five million per fight. This is from various sources, four to five million. But if it does really good, he could make up to six, seven million per fight. Okay, that's the highest. But you're talking, we have multiple boxers that are making 10 million plus this year. Gennady Golovkin made over 25, 20 million at least, minimum, actually much higher, probably 25 million minimum in his recent Canelo fight. Canelo got you know more twice as much as Gennady Golovkin at least. Tyson Fury, Joshua, Usyk. You know, you can go down the line. Then there's tons of fighters like uh, Javante Davis and and uh, Errol Spence and just fighter after fighter that are making as much as the highest paid UFC or MMA fighter. It's kind of redundant. The highest paid UFC fighter is the highest paid MMA fighter. And so those guys are making just multiples more. But we get to – but if you even go down, I, speaking to people in the profession, broadcasters and promoters, the general assumption is that if you took the top 100 highest paid fighters, 70 or 80% are going to be boxers. And we can look at the number of boxers. We keep track of who gets, I mean, I've been, you know, me and Mookie Alexander is a kind of a, just a fun thing. We can keep track of how many million dollar purses in boxing. And at some point, I think in July, there was almost 30. There, at the end of July, I think there was 30 boxers that had made a million dollar purses. Wow. And, and you compare that to MMA, MMA and it's doubtful. It's doubtful. We don't know exact numbers, but it's very doubtful that 10 fighters uh, got a million dollar purses so far at that point in MMA. Would that be UFC or across the board? All, all across the board, all of them. What explains that difference? Well, there's many there's many explanations for that. I guess the number one explanation, the very simple explanation, is that boxers have more leverage. And the reason boxers have more leverage is because there's more competition in boxing. And the reason there's more competition in boxing is a bunch of reasons. And those reasons are there's... Do separated titles from the promoters, you know, the sanctioning organizations. There's federal legislation, the Ali Act, and there's even antitrust legislation in the past that have set up an environment where they have more leverage. What part does the sanctioning organization play in there being more competition? Well, the simple thing that the sanctioning organization does is it prevents the promoter from di- having control over the title. And What's, what's very interesting in MMA is we always talk about MMA somewhat based on pro wrestling, but it's more based on pro wrestling than I think people understand. If you look back in the history of boxing and pro wrestling, both had sanctioning organizations back in the early part of the 20th century. That's Sanctioning organizations sprung up because there were multiple promoters, multiple fighters claiming they're the best, and they needed a way to say, we, the public – we determine this person is the true champ. We, the public, do for the public's on path. The New York Athletic Commission, New York Athletic Boxing uh, uh, Commission, the earliest one, the New York Boxing Commission. Sorry, the New, they're the they were one of the first com, uh, athletic commissions. I mean, true sanctioning organizations. Before that, you had the Police Gazetteer that did both pro wrestling and boxing. But the New York Boxing Commission came in and said, we're going to dictate and say, this is the champion. We crown the champion. So you have to go to them to get sanctioned to be the champion. They tried to do the same in pro wrestling. But in in boxing, it stuck around that an independent body would be the sanctioning organization going forward. In pro wrestling, though, the promoters decided that they do not want an outside body dictating to them who picks the champion. And so the pro the early pro wrestlers started founding their own sanctioning organizations to crown their champion, basically bogus internal pro, uh, promotional controlled sanctioning organizations. And it's stuck with pro wrestling since then. They kept the illusion for years that they're independent bodies and the national wrestling Alliance, the NWA is probably the most famous, but eventually they threw out the illusion and the promoter became their own sanctioning organization with the uh, AWA, with the WWWF, which eventually became the WWF. They became their own sanctioning organizations. In other words, controlling the belts themselves. It was a promotional title where boxing was kept independent. And because the boxing title is independent, the promoter cannot dictate they try to, they, they illegally try to, and we'll get to that later with the ways they do it and what's stopped them now. 
but they they can't they they have no control because they have no real control over that title. They have to prom, they have to compete with other promoters to get the best fighters. So that way, those fighters could then compete with each other to see who's the champion. You were leading into the the Ali Act, obviously. Yes. What part does that play? A simple way promoters got around this this independent sanctioning title for years. Uh, and now we have multiple sanctioning organizations, but they got the way they got around it is they did what's called option clauses. And option clauses, the International Boxing Club of New York did this, and then uh, Don King was famous for this. Bob Arum did it. And option clauses, if I have a champion, let's say you want to fight the champion, I'm going to demand, I'll say, you can fight the champion, my boxer who's the champion, you can fight him, but you have to agree to a contract that I get options on you afterwards for a number of fights. Basically, you have to sign with me as your promoter to get a chance to fight the champion. And that way, they would, no matter who won, they were the promoter of the champion. And that locked them in. So they, they would have a monopoly over a division, the heavyweight division, the middleweight. As soon as they got the champion, they could dictate terms and make everybody else sign to fight that guy. And what the Ali Act did, this is the number one thing it did. The Ali Act banned what's called course of contracts. And course of contracts is basically what I just said. You cannot demand that someone signs options with you. You can, but the only way you can do is, one, if someone is a mandatory from a sanctioned organization, in other words, the sanctioned organization says that's the number one contender, you have no rights to them. You have to let them fight for the title, but you cannot demand any options from them. And so right there, that eliminates the power, the monopoly that a promoter can gain because they cannot demand people sign with them. And then secondly, what that does too then the, the next one is is the only options you can have, you give a fight to someone that's not a mandatory, You're the only options you can have is for one year. So you have some, you gain some options from them, but you don't dictate their whole career. And what that does, it gives boxers tremendous leverage because now you've got to, now they're no longer stuck. If they win the title, they're no longer stuck with you. I mean, look at uh, Usyk's a great example. Now Usyk signed a rematch clause with Joshua, but he was a mandatory, right? And so he didn't have to sign that rematch clause to get that mandatory fight. They just did it because it was financially, there's a financial incentive for both of them. But because of that, he did not sign with pre existing terms for that rematch with Anthony Joshua. So when they did have the rematch, instead of getting the seven to 10 million he got for the first fight, he could ask for 50% now on the rematch, and he got like $35 million. His page drastically increased. What part did the, does the antitrust suit play in all this? Well, it put the Ali Act. One thing people miss is the Ali Act has kind of an antitrust component to it. And it's the course of contract to prevent people from monopolizing uh, divisions. It also puts a barrier between sanctioning organizations and promoters that they can't they can't compensate directly to the sanctioning organization. Now, we know this still happens. We know there's that uh, that people pay what's called lobby organizations that funnel money to the sanctioning organizations. But enough of a barrier has been put there that prevents the worst, most egregious behavior of the past. So it's gotten better in that sense, but it still happens a little bit. But for antitrust, there was a famous case back in the 1950s, the International Boxing Club of New York versus the U.S., and it was an antitrust case. The International Boxing Club of New York was a famous mobbed-up promotion, but they did what I said. They had the ch world championship and some other belts, and they demanded that if you want to fight the champion, you have to sign with us, long-term exclusive contracts. And so everybody knows you become more valuable in combat sports if you become the champion. In fact, the International Boxing Club of, of New York versus U.S. case, the analysis showed that champions – brought in much more revenue than non-championship bouts. And so to become the champion, you had to sign with them. So you had an incentive to sign with them because you wanted to prove you're the best and, and become a bigger draw. And so they had the leverage to force you to sign with them and that way suppress your pay and keep out competitors afterwards. Now, the the the, the antitrust case, the inter IBC of New York, they lost. So they got broken up, ending it. And that, that antitrust case stayed in the books and led directly to the Ali Act. But interesting enough, there was another potential antitrust case that was going to be filed at the same time versus the National Wrestling Alliance about their monopoly over wrestling. What happened, though, is that the wrestlers met with the FBI, uh, who were doing helping the investigation for the FTC, and basically told them, these matches aren't legitimate. And because they were preoccupied with the case involving the International Box of New York, they decided, well, they're not legitimate matches. We can let it go. 
but it kind of set up this precedent that pro, that MMA has adopted that the title, the promoter can own their own titles. Yeah, basically, they they just followed suit with that mobbed up uh, boxing club. And they hooked up with the Fertitas, and I'm not going to say they were mobbed up, but they they sort of mobbed up within within the legal confines, though, because until the antitrust suit plays out, whether it's for the UFC or against it, they are at liberty to keep doing business as usual. Correct? Yeah, there's there's no there's nothing that says they can't do this. There's nothing that says they can't determine who fights for the title. There's nothing that says they can't demand that you sign with them before you get a chance for the title. What's considered a restraint on trade in boxing is completely legitimate and allowed in MMA. Damn. All right. Before we wrap up, I was wondering, could you give us a, a little bit of an example of a negotiation and, and how all these parts come into play? Maybe, um, you know, a, a UFC fight being compared with a boxing match and the purses and all of that. Can you do something along those lines for us? Yeah, sure. It's it's pretty simple with the UFC. Like we said, the under the prelim guys to get in the UFC is a big pay bump for most guys. They're very a lot of them aren't happy to get in the UFC. Where it starts to get to problem is when you start moving up the ranks, when you start becoming a higher ranked opponent, when you start becoming a more well-known, bigger drawing opponent or a champion, you don't have the leverage you'd see in boxing. And the reason is because you've signed away your rights to get into the UFC. All the other major com- competitors that you want to fight that would make do big numbers are in the UFC. And because the UFC has held this position for years, the fans are conditioned to watch the UFC and assume that the best are in the UFC. And so all that comes together to mean that the leverage is on the UFC side. So if you have a fighter like, let's say, George St. Pierre, we have his numbers for some of his fights. We've got George St. Pierre when he fought Dan Hardy back at UFC, uh, what was it, 111, I believe it was. Well, we know Dan Hardy, and Dan Hardy has said he only got like 24000 for that fight, right? Mm-hmm. George St. Pierre, we know, got about $3 million for that fight. The fight itself generated $28 million. So a tremendous, a, tremendous, a tremendous amount of money, but the total purses paid to the fighters was only $4 million. And the, the reason that the UFC could do that is because George St. First, Dan Hardy was his dream. He was fighting for his dream. His dream was to become a champion and prove himself in MMA. The UFC is the only place to do that, so he's happy to be there. The UFC is the only place to do that. No promoter, no manager, I mean, himself, no one else is going to think that we need to leverage him against another promotion because another promotion rival doesn't really exist at that level. So there's no thought of like, oh, I got to hold out and ask for more money because if I hold out and ask for more money, I am not going to be made a mandatory like I would in boxing. I'm going to be skipped over and they're going to give the the fight to someone else. And so I have to agree to those terms and I have to agree to those terms. And George St. Pierre is the same. He, to get to the championship and make himself this major star, he had to become a UFC champion. But the only way he could become a UFC champion is signing the UFC contract, right? And then being locked in that UFC contract. Now we stuck because I have to accept the purse agreement that I made, right? Because the UFC has all the other fighters and has all the revenue. They don't need me. They can be repeat player. So if I don't agree to to this fight that they want to have for me, not only would I not get paid, the UFC will fill the slot and not miss a beat. If I do accept that that purse, I can't hold out because, first of all, I mean, I can't plan on jumping ship and fighting somewhere else if I don't like the terms because I'm in this long-term contract I had to sign to even get in this place. And because even if I do, what are the odds that there's another promotion out there that has an opponent for me that can draw comparable numbers. Now, a fighter could easily, not easily, but if a fighter went all of his career and got fought his way out and got out, that's one thing. He could be a major draw. Very few, there's a handful of fighters that are major draws themselves, and we see how they push up UFC uh, revenue when they fight. But if that one fighter leaves and he has no one to compete against, are the fans going to follow him? That's the question. And if he goes to another promotion when they've been conditioned to view only the UFC as this place for everybody, all the best fight, what percentage of fans are going to lose? And so that that's that's the hurdle everybody's facing every step of the way. So that's why we're seeing your Patty Pimlets, who are megastars in small promotions, you know, big fish, little pond, cage, uh, cage warriors, come mm-hmm. over to the UFC 
because that's that's where all your fame and glory and and the money is. Yeah, and gotta, eventually. And then we got to play a waiting game for the UFC to carefully match him to keep him winning and keep that fan base alive. Yeah, well, and the UFC doesn't – they might like the fan base, but they don't need it. They they have 90% of the revenue in MMA. So anytime Patty might say, listen, I dem- I'm a big star. I demand a much bigger cut. They're like, you know, we, we don't really need to protect you anymore. We don't even need to let make you fight. Yeah. We can put you on the shelf because we have so much revenue coming and we can just move on. We're a repeat player. That sucks. That really, really sucks. <laughs> yeah, but then you look at the comparison. You have – you have Canel Alvarez, who in many ways is similar to George St. Pierre in his career and what the amount of money he's, his events have generated for his promoter. And and Canel Alvarez, the difference is Canel Alvarez could sign with the promoter, but he had uh, he was a young talent that people knew was a talent. And because the way boxing works, that there's multiple promoter app promotional avenues to go to to become the best in the world. You have multiple promotions to go to. So he could choose the promotion that gave him somewhat the best offer. Or, you know, the offer that the the offer that the I shouldn't say the best, and the most lucrative, but also the offer that gave them the most freedom, the best contract, whatever. Boxers have that choice. They're not locked into contracts of adhesion, which the UFC is. In other words, UFC is a take it or leave it contract. We have all the power. Here's the contract. You have to accept it. Boxing, you have much more leverage, much more options, even if the contracts are not always they're pretty crappy as UFC fighters, but they don't have certain elements that can lock you in as long. So he gets to choose his promoter, then him and his promoter, because that promoter doesn't have the entire market. That promoter has a part of the market and is dependent on the boxers that he has to draw all of his revenue. So it's not like the UFC can say, oh, we can put you on the shelf and we'll just move John Jones in your place. And if John Jones problem, we'll just move the next, you know, we'll move whoever's at the, the next heavyweight title fight because Branson Gano's on. In other words, the UFC can just keep shifting the top stars into that place because they have everybody. A boxing promoter doesn't. So boxing, the fighter has leverage because he knows my fights generate a lot more revenue than other people. I demand a much bigger cut of this revenue. Otherwise, you won't get any of it. And so the boxing promoter often... Unlike MMA, where you have a set contract terms, boxers often, not often, almost when you're at the top, almost always renegotiate their deal. They have minimums, not their what they're supposed to get paid, but their minimum. Like I get my minimum says I get paid five hundred thousand a fight, but if I know going into the fight that this is going to be a massive pay per view or a massive draw at the gate or whatever, I can demand and say no. My minimum is going to be two million for this fight, or I'm not taking it. And the promoter who wants the revenue for this event is going to find some sort of ground with you and often has to, and often falls in the ground, the side of the boxer, if he has the more, the more leverage he has. So if the, the promoter is going to say, let's say make 3 million on the event, the boxer might say, you're going to make 3 million. I demand 70% of it because it's me that's generating the vast majority of that revenue. And so he can take that. So Canelo, when it's huge sums of money, the higher it goes, the, the money, usually the higher the percentage of the boxer because he's more responsible for it. So in Canelo's case, when he signed with the zone, he got $35 million from DAZN. Actually, I should say Golden Boy got $40 million from DAZN, but they had to give $35 million of that to Canelo. On top of that, Canelo also got a cut of the gate and sponsors. And a $360 this... million deal, which is now Nolan Boyd. But, yeah, I mean, for, 10, for, yeah, yeah. for 10, 10 fights. And now that's gone, but now he had negotiation because there's multiple contenders. He was negotiating between uh, Showtime and DAZN with Eddie Hearn. Both parties, he picked the more lucrative offer with uh, DAZN, lost the Bibble fight where he made $45 million. And then he fought Gennady Golovkin. And the, the talk is he had a $45 million minimum, but it, it's possible his minimum might have been $60 million, actually, mm-hmm. for that fight. He might have went all in. He might have got up to 60 or more million, which he was guaranteed in the original DAZN deal. So that's the the other step. And the, the other piece of leverage that boxers have, like we talked before, is because the sanctioning organizations are separate because the promoter doesn't control the titles and doesn't control the rank rating system. The fighter has much more leverage there because as a boxer, you're the most valuable at the champion. You don't have free reign. Your promoter doesn't to pick your contender. He has to fit the requirements. And if it's a mandatory fighter, the mandatory challenger, if you can't come to terms with them and go to what's called a purse bid, and a purse bid is everybody bids on the fight and the boxers get to keep the money, well, you don't want to see a purse bid because you put all this effort building this fighter and now you're going to lose it to someone else in a purse bid. You're often willing to negotiate and 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 give and give more to the opponent to make sure you keep the fight. And on top of that as well, 
the boxers have they keep the the rating system because the promoter doesn't control it in other words who rises in the ratings and who gets to be cleared mandatories the boxer owns his own rating so as a promoter you can't just pick and choose which fighters you want to work with and guide them to a, a title you have to pick and choose the best guys or those also those raked which means you got to negotiate with a select few fighters and they have a lot more rever- uh, leverage and that's why you see at the very top of the, the the sport, when you're talking about the guys that are champions, when you're talking about the contenders, they are making multiples what you'd see in MMA. The champions, uh, a UFC champion, let's say uh, Kamaru Usman, might make $3 million a fight. Someone that does similar – that's a good example. Someone makes does similar numbers of a Kamaru Usman fight, let's say a half a million buy, uh, 500,000 buys, him and his opponent in boxing might split $30 million. And, you know, you have your big, uh, your big three guys um... – it's uh, Tyson Fury, Floyd Mayweather, and Canelo. They're kind of unique from other boxers in that they aren't contracted for more than one single fight to any promotion. Now, I know Canelo signed that big DAZN deal, but that thing was over and done with like a puff of smoke. I mean, the, the pandemic hit and he was like, got to go see you. You don't, you don't have my fights ready for me, blah, blah, blah. But still... You know, Tyson Fury, he is locked into no promoter. Floyd Mayweather is notorious for it. How does a boxer get into that position? Are only the creme de la creme at the top in that position? Or could others also uh, find themselves where that they don't have to be locked into multi-fight deals with promoters? And I'm looking at boxers only. Devin Haney recently was in that position. Now he signed a a short-term contract with Top Rank. Mm -hmm. But Devin Haney, for for a while, he would sign short-term agreements, and then he was a free agent with shopping himself around after he beat uh, uh, for a while. So now... Devin Haney has done that. He's he's now I consider him a star because he's the champion. Yeah. But but the 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 thing is because he did not have to sign a long term agreement with the promoter. He signed a three fight deal to get the fight with the uh, with Cambosis. Three fights is all it. Because he didn't have to sign a long term deal, he can win the title and fight out his contract and then shop the 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 market with that. The same with the uh, other boxers. They they win the title. The promoter doesn't control it. So the the boxer if he leaves. The promotion, he's still the champion. He doesn't get stripped of his title by leaving the the champion the the promotion. The other thing is, if he's the number one contender for the belt, he can sign with another promoter. He retains that position as the number one contender, and so you don't have the leverage that MMA promoters have, where they can tell a, a fighter that, oh, you want to fight for the title? Well, you will fight for the title as soon as you sign the six fight, eight fight agreement with us. Otherwise, you're not going to fight the title. A boxer can say, I don't have to sign anything because I'm the mandatory. I can sign with whoever I want. I'll still be the mandatory tomorrow. See, I love that. You know, one other thing, uh, an observation that I have made during the course of this conversation is that with the UFC controlling their own belts and this and that, the other thing that they are also controlling is the rankings. Because remember, it used to be, um, what was it, a... Um, fight matrix that controlled the rankings and it was supposed to be unbiased and you know you had to apply or they selected you to be one of the rankings judges that that figures out who who is ranked because I actually sat on that panel when it first came out and then the UFC went and bought them so now you have it went from fight matrix rankings to UFC rankings and now they control their own ranking system and their own belts and everything else is in-house. So basically, when you were talking about the um, the boxing club in New York being all mobbed up, it's sort of looking like that over here, too. Well, we should be fair, too, because it's not just UFC. Bellator does the same thing. Sure. One now has their own rankings. And the beauty of the those companies' rankings is not only is it a promotional title. In other words, they determine who fights for the title. And you can only fight for the title if you're a, a part, if you're signed to that promotion and only can keep the title as long as you're with the promotion. Not only do they have that, but you cannot be ranked unless you're signed to the promotion. Mm. And so it's automatically exclusively for fighters signed to them. And that takes away leverage because no longer does the promoter in other words uh carlos newton had a great comment i think it really sums it up now boxing i, I don't want i gotta be fair boxing has a lot of problems boxing has a lot of corruption but in this category these fighters make a lot more because of this and and the way it is because carlos newton, as carlos newton described it in boxing 
promoters compete for each other for boxers and boxers compete for the titles mm-hmm. and because they're somewhat separate and MMA promoters can own the titles and boxers com- I mean fighters compete with each other for the chance to fight for those titles yeah. and so you have the situation where fighters are constantly underbidding each other for a chance to fight for the title why is it that MMA doesn't have a universal ranking system? I'll tell you why we used to, and the UFC went and bought them. Well, I, I think the best rankings we ever had was the consensus rankings by Bloody Elbow. Yeah. And we stopped doing it because I think USA Today did not want to be part of it anymore because it was a joint venture with USA Today. Uh-huh. But that I don't know why, but that was the best rankings we've ever had in MMA. And it, this is a kind of a minor thing. I think that a media rankings, like a consensus rankings, or if the MMAJA wanted to do it, some sort of media rankings that was that included all the fighters from all the promotions would be somewhat helpful for fighters uh, for leverage. Because at the very least, if if every media site used just the media rankings and ignored the UFC rankings, the Bellator rankings, the One rankings, just completely ignored those promotional rankings, the enough fans might start seeing it and start becoming aware of the rankings that fighters would get some sort of leverage because they would have that title, that ranking with them wherever they went. So fighters might ask, like we did back in the Strike Force day, why doesn't the UFC sign Jake Shields? He's obviously one of the best welterweights in the world. He should be fighting, you know, they need to get him. And you'd say that with the other promotions, you know, you Strike Force, you can't cut that guy because he's your second best middleweight. You know, if if you could if you could have them on a, a set universal rankings across cross promotions, it'd give fighters a little more leverage because as it currently exists, if a fighter leaves a promotion, they're instantly dropped from the rankings. And if fans are only looking at the promotion's rankings, they're not gonna know suddenly that spot's just gonna be filled with another fighter. They're not gonna miss the vacancy of that fighter. We certainly won't miss the vacancy of Jake Shields. We I could tell you that right now. Well, he might have been a bad example. (laughs) It was a terrible example. Absolutely awful. So this has been illuminating, enlightening. And I hope everybody listening is as enlightened as I am. So what I want to do right now, got to get what you got going on. Because I know that there is another show money in the works. And I believe you'll be hitting one of the If the Shoes Fits. I know you'll probably be making a victory lap at Care Don't Care next week. Yeah, just give me the whole rundown. Basically, all of those. We're, we're, we're planning on recording at Show Money. We just we can't get a set date for all of us together. So hopefully this week at some point we'll record a new Show Money. Uh, I, I'm supposed to be on If the Shoe Fits this Tuesday night. Uh, maybe next week as well. And then, yeah, the care, that's a given. I mean, that's like 90% chance <laughs> of victory on Care Don't Care. So... I will say this, though. I do want to put one little post thought, one little stamp on this conversation. I think it's an absolute tragedy that we likely won't get to see Patricio Pitbull fight Alex Volkanovsky or someone else from another promotion. I would really like to see that fight, though, because he's he's top five. He's top three. I'm certain of it. Yeah, I mean, I think he could compete with some of the best fighters, and yes. it is sad he doesn't get mm. a chance to fight uh, the and the Volkanovski is generally considered the best fighter in the world. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not the calling him out and saying, "Oh, they're afraid to make this oh, yeah, pro- sure. cross promotion." is is kind of silly because they're obviously not going to make the cross promotion because the UFC, as it currently is, they're guaranteed to keep most of the money and make sure the championship stays in their promotion, and so. They that's why they will never do cross promotion. It's going to take an outside body to force it. Mm-hmm. But the the thing is, as much as I talked about how that creates higher pay for a large chunk of boxers, the not just the champions, but the contenders also make a lot more uh, and the top ranked fighters in boxing all make a lot more than MMA. There's no the vast majority, I, I would say, of fans would be against that. They like the idea of the promoters owning their belts. Uh, they like this kind of uh, not being derogatory, but this pro wrestling model, because that's what it is. And a large chunk of the fighters like it that way, too. I don't think and Josh Thompson's example. They do not like the idea of having fighters from different promotions being able to being compelled to fight if they wanted to retain the title. Uh, you can't compel anybody to fight. But you could say if you if you don't fight, we you're no longer crowned the champion. 
they don't like that idea of cross cross promotions for titles that the titles are independent of the promotion and uh that's you know so that's where we're stuck so mma fighters even though that kind of competition would probably increase their pay specifically the the better the the, the ranked fighters the top fighters I don't detect much outside of a select few, you know, a small group of fans. I don't t- detect much movement in that direction. And that is what sucks about being a sport still in its infancy. I mean, we're just under 30 years in. Look at how, how far baseball's come and, and football and basketball. So I would hope that when we're at that point, we're much further along uh, with with the humanitarian side of it than than we are right now because it's pretty shitty right now. Yeah, I I, I don't personally, I do not think the age of the sport, the, how long it's been around, is going to cause change because you know right. the NBA the fighters, NBA players within thirty years of the creation of the NBA, they were making sixty seven percent of the revenue. Oh Lord! So ah. they were they were getting a, a they were very competitive uh, league at the time with the ABA and then on their own with free agency. So I I just don't I I don't see that happening in MMA anytime soon. Ugh. Well, on that very dismal and sour note, we are going to wrap the show. Do me a favor, go follow John on his social media, which is only Twitter. But you can find him there at Hey Not The Face, just like the name of the show, which is not a porn show. Just going to put that out there once again. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> and you can also find his work on Bloody Elbow, as is mine. And you can find him on Show Money, on Care Don't Care, on If The Shoes Fit, and guesting on a host of other podcasts. He's the man in demand. So make sure you're following him. Until next time, please stay safe. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We're also on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, the Level Change Podcast, the MMA Bivis Section, the 6th Round Post-Fight Show, 6th Round Retro, the MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive Fighter Interviews, Show Money, Guest Podcasts, the Hey Not The Face Podcast, and Radio Style Play-By-Play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bloody Elbow Blog, and as always, on BloodyElbow.com. <laughs>